Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W.A.B.E. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Though the summer solstice is three weeks away, the Memorial Day weekend ushered in the unofficial beginning of summer for many. Whether you will be on break or just enjoy reading at home, Matt Nixon from Acapella Books has curated a summer reading list with a wide array of recommendations that we'll hear about later this hour. First, today marks the anniversary of the horrific events of the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. In 1982, the historian Scott Ellsworth published a definitive volume on the subject, Death in a Promised Land. Last year, he released The Groundbreaking, An American City and Its Search for Justice. That book further exposes the truth of the Tulsa Massacre and its subsequent cover-up. I spoke with Scott Ellsworth via Zoom shortly after the release of the book in May of 2021. With Death in a Promised Land, you filled a major gap in our collective history by presenting the story of how mobs of white Tulsans looted and burned down the affluent black community of Greenwood, described as the Black Wall Street. Hundreds of people lost their lives. More than a thousand homes and businesses were destroyed, and it's estimated that around 10,000 people were left homeless. Why didn't this event appear in our history books? Well, it didn't appear because people made sure that didn't happen. After the race massacre, the white politicians and businessmen who ran Tulsa realized they had a PR problem on their hand. So they decided that we're going to go ahead and, and silence discussions of this. And they did it for about 50 years. Official records were destroyed. Incriminating articles and newspapers were cut out of bound volumes. Researchers who attempted to write about this uh, were threatened, some with their lives, others with their livelihoods. And uh, for nearly a half a century, Tulsa's white daily newspapers refused to write anything about it. 
Ironically, though, Lois, on the other side of the tracks in the African-American community, it was not discussed publicly either. And I think the thing to remember is that many of the massacre survivors suffered from PTSD. And like Holocaust survivors, they didn't want to burden their children with these stories and grandchildren, these stories of these horrible things that they had experienced. So the massacre wasn't talked about for nearly 50 years, and it's taken us about 50 years to get the story out again. Mm. You mentioned a comparison to the Holocaust and the fact that African-Americans didn't want to talk about the Tulsa race massacre because of the pain that it just perpetuated for subsequent generations. There's a bit of a parallel in Atlanta history with the lynching of Leo Frank. Are you familiar with that story? Oh, yeah, I'm very much well familiar with that. And the response of the Jewish community here in Atlanta was similar. It's so complex on so many levels. How did this story remain alive? Well, it remained alive because of a remarkable and courageous group of massacre survivors and some white eyewitnesses as well who made sure that the stories were kept alive. And I ended up just being very lucky as a 21-year-old college student who had decided to write his senior thesis about the massacre. I came back home to Tulsa during the summer of 1975 And at first, I really had a difficult time doing any research. You know, records were missing. I couldn't figure out what went on. And then I got very lucky in that I did my first oral history interview ever with a gentleman named W.D. Williams, who was 16 at the time of the massacre. His parents were some of the most successful merchants in Greenwood. And uh, he agreed to meet with me in what we thought would be an hour interview lasted for four hours And that was really the day that we understood how this entire thing happened. And then three years later, he introduced me to other massacre survivors who hadn't been interviewed by anyone. And uh, they were all adults in 1921. And it's really because of their stories and their willingness to share what happened allowed us finally to determine what exactly happened in Tulsa during those dark days. So your connection with the subject is deeply personal. You did your senior thesis on the Tulsa Race Massacre. What impact did learning about the events have on the course of your life after that? Oh, it had an incredible course. You know, I grew up in Tulsa. So as a kid growing up, In the 1960s, I would hear rumors that something had happened, that, uh, you know, bodies floating down the Arkansas River. My house was five houses from the river of machine guns, airplanes, and stuff like that. But you just couldn't find out anything about it. But certainly, I was, and it, it didn't have to be me. It just happened to be me. I ended up being a witness to these elderly survivors. They had not told this story outside of their own family. And I've always felt that my subsequent work over the years, I've often thought about them, about their courage and their openness, you know, to tell this story and that I owe it to their memory to help make sure that others learn about what happened. 
I'm still astonished at the fact that this event did not appear in our public school history textbooks. But then again, I grew up in an era when our public school history textbooks never mentioned the Japanese internment camps. And you are filling such an important gap in our collective history. Would you please talk about your work with the Tulsa Race Riot Commission, as it was first called, and then the Race Massacre Centennial? Yeah, sure. So I was hired by the Race Riot Commission, a state commission, to be their lead scholar. I had a wonderful team of scholars, but I decided that the one area we really needed to learn more about is how many people died during the massacre. We still don't have a good number on that. But I also began the search for the uh, unmarked mass graves of massacre victims. I went to the survivors first who asked me to do that. We interviewed over 300 people in Tulsa, cemetery workers, funeral directors, city employees, survivors, eyewitnesses. We identified three areas in town where we thought that massacre victims had been buried in unmarked graves. And then we got caught up in the politics of reparations. Our efforts were shut down. And then two years ago, the current mayor of Tulsa asked me to help restart those efforts. We've reassembled a a team of archaeologists and forensic scientists. And uh, this past October, we finally discovered a unmarked mass grave at a Tulsa City Cemetery that we believe hold the remains of at least a dozen identified and unidentified African-American massacre victims. And on June 1st, we're going to begin exhuming that grave. I wondered if you could describe some of the personal feelings, some of the emotions being in the cemetery. It was an arduous process. You had geologists, seismologists digging and several false starts. What happened when you were able to behold that moment? Well, that was, as you can imagine, that was one of the most powerful, you know, somebody who's been off and on researching and writing about this story for 45 years. That was, of course, a powerful, unforgettable moment. And, you know, on the one hand, I was certainly thrilled and excited when these first outlines of these coffins, first two and then four and then six and then eight and then 12 happened. But It was also a very sobering experience. These are all murder victims who had been forgotten. These are our honored dead, and they need to be treated with dignity and respect. But Lois, in all frankness, as soon as I saw them, I I thought about those marvelous survivors who had opened up to me back in in the 1970s and how happy they would be at this moment. Mm. So it, it was a very powerful moment for me. In North Tulsa, you write, the new catchphrase was no reconciliation without reparations. What was extraordinary about a lawsuit filed by Demario Solomon Simmons? So there have been efforts now, you know, for lasting more than 20 years to win some form of monetary restitution for massacre survivors and their descendants. So the original Tulsa Race Riot Commission, the state commission 20 years ago, recommended that restitution be paid to the 150 or so known survivors at that point. Unfortunately, the state of Oklahoma turned their back on a wonderful opportunity 
and instead of paying any restitution, they gave the survivors each a gold-plated medal. Mm. A couple of years later, uh, Professor Charles Ogletree of the Harvard Law School filed a, a lawsuit trying to win restitution for survivors. That uh, lawsuit wound its way through the courts and made it all the way to the United States Supreme Court, but they would not hear the case. So earlier last year, a new lawsuit was filed by a, an African-American attorney in Tulsa, Demario Solomon Simmons, on behalf of survivors, and we have three, I believe, survivors alive at this point, descendants and other groups seeking restitution. And we'll just have to see how that court case goes. It's uh, Reparations in any form are a very complicated topic, but there's no doubt in my mind that they are deserved, well-deserved in the case of the Tulsa Race Massacre, but I think it's going to be a, a big hill to climb. Oh, yes. And given the state history, there's another layer. You have Native Americans, American Indians, who are resentful of some of the, well, certainly the implication, because you write about the fact that the African Americans in Tulsa, many of those in Oklahoma, were originally brought as slaves. And then freedmen of, is it the Choctaw? or Cherokee, Creek, Choctaw, the, oh, right, the major tribes from the Southeast. The, yeah, but then you have people of American Indian descent saying, you want to talk about reparations. <laughs> what about the United States? No, certainly, you're exactly right. And I think it's important to remember that no white person ever spent any prison time for any of the murders or or robbery or arson that happened in 1921. The city government let the community down. So did the state government. So did the federal government, who did nothing. And also, a number of the black merchants in Tulsa had insurance policies, and all of the insurance companies turned them down. So I think that if there is going to be a form of restitution, which I believe there should be for uh, massacre survivors and their descendants, it will likely have to come through the federal government but also I think insurance companies, some of those insurance companies are still around. I think there's an opportunity for them to make good on promises that their forebears did not keep. Scott, what did it mean for you traveling to Tulsa for the excavations? I mean, this was before vaccinations. People were masked. You had to practice all sorts of safety protocols. Here you are late in 2020, and then January 6th, 2021 happens, the insurrection at the Capitol, following on the heels of the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and too many others. It must have been dizzying for you to consider that history just was repeating itself. Well, certainly, there's no question that the murder of George Floyd and the response to his murder has launched what I describe as our country is in the age of reevaluation, where we're thinking about who our heroes are, who our heroes are not. We have statues coming down, we have buildings being renamed, and we have a lot of division over this. But I think that we're at a moment right now where we can perhaps be more open to an honest discussion of our history. American history is, is what it is. 
America has given great gifts to the world, and those should be celebrated. But we've also done things that, in retrospect, were not right. And we can't just teach a sugar-coated version of our history. So I think we're at a moment now where hopefully people are more interested in learning the totality of our past. And only if we're honest about our past can we learn from it. And once we share a common vision of, of what our past is, I think that'll help us better as we try to chart a future for a nation. You write that history is not just a chronicle of events, rather a mirror of both who we are and who we want to be. Within that framework, what is the legacy of the Tulsa Race Massacre? Well, there's lots of legacies. One of the legacies is there has always been a great pride in the Greenwood community. Even after the community was destroyed, there was a, a feeling amongst Black Tulsans that we had defended our community. We had built it. We had fought for it. The vast majority did not leave the city and they rebuilt it again. So I think that there is a tradition of perseverance and of courage. That certainly is one of the uh, legacies of it. Tulsa right now, it's, it's very curious. I mean, as John Hope Franklin, the historian, once said that Tulsa lost its sense of honesty. And that happened for a half century. And Tulsa is getting it back again. But that's a difficult process. People who have been taught one version of their history learned that actually something else happened. That's a difficult moment. You know, there's possibilities here. I think it's important to remember that Oklahoma is the most conservative state in the United States. And yet it's in Tulsa that, in a way, Tulsans are ahead of the curve in terms of trying to deal with this hidden past. And I think that perhaps there's some lessons that other communities can learn from as well. Author Scott Ellsworth, professor of Afro-American and African studies at the University of Michigan. His book is The Groundbreaking, An American City and Its Search for Justice. With today marking the anniversary of the horrific Tulsa Race Massacre in 1921, let's revisit some of my conversation with the renowned choreographer Donald Byrd. His work, Greenwood, was commissioned by the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, and the piece is named for the neighborhood where the massacre began. Early in 2020, when I spoke with Donald Byrd ahead of the Ailey Atlanta debut of his work at the Fox Theater, he described the powder keg that was about to occur in 1921. Well, I mean, it was a, a period right after the end of the First World War, and it was the first time that American black soldiers were in combat in the war and were actually fighting there and they returned to America and there was a little bit of disappointment around their return because they, while they're fighting in Europe, they were kind of, sort of, treated as equals, but they returned back to Jim Crow America. And so the Jim Crow era, especially at the beginning of it, which was this was maybe 50 years after the end of Reconstruction, and uh, so 
it a lot of the what we think of as Jim Crow was starting to emerge at this point. So that was the behavior of Jim Crow. The was starting to emerge and to kind of evolve and turn into what we we know it for. And so this was the the environment that the Tulsa race massacre occurred in. While I was reading about this, I was shocked that it's not in American history books. Mm -hmm. Why don't we know more about this? Why was this pogrom, which Mm -hmm. equals any pogrom in Europe, this was our government rounding people up, burning their neighborhood, and brutally attacking, murdering? Why is yeah. this not in American history books? Well, and, and also the, the one thing to remember is that this was not an isolated incident. It was happening around the country. There's another famous one that happened two years later in Florida, as a matter of fact, where Robert and I are both from. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of shocking to me as well when I started to discover these things. And I think the reason that it's not in history books is because it was deliberately omitted and erased from the public consciousness by governments, by the the news media, and so that it would people would not know about it. That was the intention. That was what was wanted, and that is exactly what happened. So all the more important that now you are providing this important lesson in American history yes. as well yes. as an art form. The dance unfolds in three acts. Can you tell us something about the piece as we experience it? Yeah. I think one of the things to understand or to realize about the piece is that it's not uh, presented in a kind of linear narrative, that it's fragmented, and that we get things in pieces. The three parts that you're talking about are the... uh, three ways that the the facts, quote-unquote, of what happened or what instigated the massacre uh, uh, are presented. So it's presented in three iterations. The first one is a kind of, is, you could say, a kind of literal representation of what happened. So the story is what we know uh, what happened with some certainty is that a young man, Dick Rowland, stepped into an elevator, young black man, stepped into an elevator with the white elevator operator, Sarah Page. He stepped in the elevator, and he also stepped on her toe, and she screamed. He ran away. That's what we know that happened. So I present that version of what happened. And then there were other interpretations that was he stepped into the elevator and he attacked her. So we get that version of the narrative. And then there was a version that said that they were involved in a romantic relationship. They knew each other before. And in the process of being in the elevator with her in their kind of encounter there, he stepped on her toe and she screamed. So the piece presents those three possible alternatives or three versions of what happened in in the elevator renowned choreographer Donald Byrd. His work, Greenwood, was commissioned and performed by the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. Coming up, 
Matt Nixon from Acapella Books shares his must-read list for this summer. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. For many, warm weather means summer reading. Whether you will have more leisure time, vacationing, or just enjoy reading at home, we have a curated list for you from writer Matt Nixon, a bookseller at Acapella Books. He joins me now via Zoom. Matt, welcome to City Lights. Well, thank you, Lois. It's a treasure to be here. Um, Nothing is better than talking books for me, so I appreciate you inviting me. Well, thank you. I have gotten in trouble for saying that reading is my favorite form of exercise because (laughs) I know that physical exercise is important, but I am with you on the joys of reading. So in addition to being a bookseller at Acapella, you are also a full-time writer for Georgia State University. Why do you want to work at Acapella? Well, for more than 10 years, I worked at independent bookstores, Acapella, for the last five of them. And uh, when I started working at Georgia State in 2016, I just missed working in a bookstore. So Frank Reese, the owner at Acapella, wonderful guy. He um, made time in the schedule for me to just work once a week so I could get my bookseller fix. It's, there's I, there's no joy better in the world for me than finding a book I love and being able to put it in people's hands and uh, then turn them turn around and them loving it too. I love that act too, Matt. The idea of sharing something that's been so meaningful in the form of a book is is unique. Are you familiar with Faith Saley? Uh, no, I'm sorry. She is on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yep. In her memoir, she has a chapter about her dad and how they communicate through books and that his special show of affection is sharing books he loves with her. And she tells a very emotional story about when her children were born and the books he gave her. Oh, wonderful. Just a little aside there. 
Do you keep track of how many books you read a month or a year? I do. You know, I just log every book I read online into the uh, the popular portal owned by the bookseller mega giant that we don't want to talk about on this show <laughs> as an independent bookseller, but um, I, I do keep track of it. And how many do you read in a year? Probably about 70, mm, okay. somewhere in that neighborhood. Do you have a favorite genre? I read a lot of literary fiction. That is really my wheelhouse. Always looking for discovery. I'm fortunate enough, having worked for independent bookstores for several years, that I built some good relationships with some uh, editors and publisher reps from various publishers. And uh, I, I'm very fortunate in the sense that they know me and what I like to read. So they curate things and send it to me and say, Matt, you're going to love this book. And they are rarely wrong on that. So I'm always looking for new authors, new discovery, and uh, I've got several debut authors that I'm excited about sharing with you today. Yeah, let's get to the list. You sent a list that includes well-known, highly anticipated books, as well as some lesser-known titles. Let's start with the high-profile authors. What can you tell us about Sea of Tranquility by... Emily St. John Mandel. Well, first of all, what I'd say about Sea of Tranquility is it's it's wonderful. It's life-affirming. She's gotten a lot of press of recent. Her uh, 2014 novel, which was her fourth one, uh, Station Eleven, was long-listed for the National Book Award, but it shot back into popularity in 2020 because it's uh, pandemic-related. And then her follow-up to that was The Glass Hotel. Sea of Tranquility, real Emily St. John Mandel fans will know that she likes to sort of bring small characters from one book and have them reappear in larger roles in another one. So it'll scratch that itch for Emily St. John Mandel fans. Um, you're going to see a lot of connections to, to her previous books. But it's a bit of a, a time-hopping narrative structure but um, what really gives it resonance is that uh, one of the areas that they speak uh, that is in the book is in uh, takes place in 2203, 2203. And uh, there is an author who wrote a best-selling book about uh, life in a pandemic, which like Station Eleven um, was. <laughs> and then her coming back into popularity because of the of a pandemic. So it really speaks to our times and like what it means to live through a pandemic and, and the hope and the joy of life that can still happen and what happens after that. And it's really meaningful in that way, but it's just a ripping yarn too with the time skipping and seeing how all those stories fit together. Hmm. I'd highly recommend it. Young Mungo by Douglas Stewart is a gay love story set in a working-class Glasgow neighborhood in the 1990s. What else can you tell us about this story? Another one, just wonderful. For those who read Douglas Stewart, the author of Young Mungo, uh, his 2020 uh, Booker Prize winner, uh, Shuggy Bain, which was about my favorite book of that year. It's a lot of the same milieu, that hard scrabble, Thatcher era, Glasgow. It's got a real tactile sense of place. And just the, 
the sadness and futility of, you know, the people who the shipbuilding jobs have left. And there's just a lot of desperation in the air. There's, um, you know, sort of the sectarian violence, just the meaningless sectarian violence of teenage kids who are Protestant, just waiting to beat up Catholic kids. And in the midst of all this, you have Mungo, who, you know, has a torn up, separated family, uh, alcoholic mother, and he finds in a neighbor, James, uh, who's Catholic, and it becomes a friendship that's bonded over this uh, racing pigeons. And then they begin to discover what those feelings might be, and, and they're forbidden. And it's, it's just a wonderful story of uh, the flower and the cracked sidewalk that hope can exist in such a toxic place. Yeah. Olga dies dreaming sounds very engaging. How would you describe this book? <laughs> Olga dies dreaming is it's just all over the place in a wonderful way. You know, readers jumping into this one can expect a love story that's, you know, complicated by family trauma and past experiences, ideas of um, place and status, you know, Olga grew up, her parents were Puerto Rican revolutionaries in the 1970s. And, you know, the dad sort of drifted out. Uh, he was a Vietnam vet. And he sort of drifted out and got hooked on drugs. And his mom uh, kept it real. She was a revolutionary and it disappeared from Olga's life at a young age. And Olga also has a brother who's a U.S. member of Congress, who's may or may not be dealing with a closeted situation that he's being held, uh, some powerful business interests are holding over his head because, you know, the machismo in the Puerto Rican community doesn't feel like he could come out. But it's it's also a glimpse into sort of high-end, ultra-elite wedding planners. And it's got these, these great sequences of Olga trying to leverage her wedding planning business into television opportunities, morning show appearances, and things like that. It, that really has a, a short critique on some of the reality television and daytime television. So it's just sort of a grab bag. You get a lot of Puerto Rican history, Puerto Rican culture in New York, and, and sort of the state of what's happening in Puerto Rico ever since the hurricane a few years back. So it, it's just sort of a wild mix. It's a lot of fun. And it's that that would be, to me, sort of a high-end summer read. Ah. Jennifer Egan is a rock star in literary fiction and popular, too. She won a Pulitzer Prize in 2011 for A Visit from the Goon Squad, and now she has written a sequel. How does her new book compare with that novel? It is a very worthy, somewhat sequel. It's very much constructed in the spirit of Goon Squad, which, you know, what everyone sort of was struck with, with by Goon Squad was th this wild, disparate, cacophony chorus of voices that were distinct and, and brought different perspectives and just sort of the rhythm and the patois and, and, and their viewpoints were just so distinctive and, and, and vital and alive. And she's really captured that again in the candy house. Some of the characters that you know from Goon Squad do reappear. You certainly would not have to have read, read Goon Squad first. It stands alone very well. And what she does deals with in this book, uh, in the Candy House, is it's really about sort of 
where it, there's it's a light lightly speculative fiction but it's really talking about where we are right now in our relation to technology online communities uh the metaverse and, and those such things and where we could go and at the end you know uh, without sort of giving away her thesis or anything she really tries to speak to what the value is and what is meaningful in human interaction and sort of where technology can augment that and where technology undermines that. Um, this is not sort of a scary, cautionary, dystopic. It's more of a thought experiment, but again, it's alive with, with various voices and, and people in different professional milieus, some who work in the tech industry, some who, who don't and work in other areas and what technology can do to preserve humanity and what it can't do. It's mm. a great read writer and acapella bookseller Matt Nixon. We'll hear more about his summer reading recommendations after a short break. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with acapella bookseller Matt Nixon. He's been sharing his summer reading recommendations. Now for your under-the-radar recommendations. Oh, good, my favorite. <laughs> From Hollywood with Love, The Rise and Fall and Rise Again of the Romantic Comedy by... Scott Meslow sounds like a fun read. What did you enjoy most about this book? It was fantastic. It's a nonfiction book. It's the one nonfiction book I did send over to you that I was excited to talk about. Here's where I'd start with it. This book takes romantic comedy seriously. I read a ton about movies and film. That's what I enjoy reading outside of, you know, fiction for a lot of reasons sexism being primarily one of them since romantic comedies primarily appeal to women the you know film scholarship doesn't take it seriously really and that's sort of a jumping off point for scott meslow in this book is he does take it seriously um he also defines starts out by you know sort of definitionally describing what a romantic comedy is and what it is not a lot of movies that are just female-centric movies that are comedies get grouped in with it, like Legally Blonde or things like that. So after he sort of level set, here's why romantic comedies are important, and here is uh, what they are and what they are not. And as he reclaims a sort of marginalized genre, he then goes through sort of, he, he's really only interested in the modern romantic comedy, starting with 1989, I believe, when Harry met Sally, and sort of trace it through to the present time. And he goes through, and at this point, it's just this, this fun and juicy inside story of 10 or 15 different movies that he decides to spotlight. You know, everything from the behind the scenes stories, like he talks about the genesis of Pretty Woman, how it started out as this gritty indie drama, and how it turned into the movie that 
you know, we all know it is now. Um, he also talks about the cultural and the critical reception of it, and then sort of tries to explain the contours of history and why these movies were this popular at this time and how all these movies were in conversation with previous romantic comedies, what they've done differently, how they built on the genre and uh, how they moved on and sort of the, the reasons why romantic comedies can't really be found at the, at the movie theater anymore and have moved online. It's just a great read. And for anyone who likes movies, full stop period, I would, I would recommend it. And especially if you like romantic comedies, you'll find a lot of great stuff to love. Mm. Girls They Write Songs About by Carlene Bauer will be released June 21st. What angle does the author take on complexities of female friendship? Carlene Bauer is a debut author, and this was one uh, that one of my contacts put in my hand and said, Matt, you need to read this. You're going to like this. The milieu is set in late 90s, or it begins, these two friends, Rose and Charlotte. Rose is sort of brash and is going to conquer the world, and Charlotte's more sort of bookish and reserved, but confident in her writing abilities. And they meet at a, a music magazine in 90s New York, so you get that whole scene turn of the century New York you know they start out as sort of frenemies and then become best friends and it just sets into this 20 plus years of rhythms of just the subtle and stinging observations of the emotional balances and the the peaks and valleys that can come in a female friendship through marriage divorce childbirth professional disappointment and how they grow apart, but but what they still mean to each other over that time. It's really wonderful and just, it's just unflinchingly honest in ways that I find, you know, you know, the saying, I, I feel like I've been seen. Mm -hmm. um, it, some of the, you know, internal emotions and dialogues that the characters talk about. We primarily follow Charlotte, the more bookish one, and the things that she is able to, you know, her character confesses to herself, um, you know, are, are not necessarily pretty. They're, they're a little ugly at times, and she can be selfish and, and knows that, but it's very human. Hmm. And um, it just real, really plugged into all the different emotional balances and states that exist in, you know, in people. One of the authors you've listed is a former acapella bookseller. Ah, yes. And Atlanta author, Samantha Jane Allen. Her debut novel, P-Dirt Road, was released in April. Tell us about this mystery. Well, this is a great summer read, Lois, I tell you. It is, you know, a literary whodunit. You know, we know how that goes. But what Samantha has done with this book, it's, She's elevated it and, and taken it to some, you know, slightly unexpected places. And what I would, the two things I'd really point out about this, just to give you a little idea of what it's about. Annie McIntyre is the lead character. She's 22 years old, just graduated from college in the big city and had to move back home. Doesn't really have career prospects at the moment. She moved back home to her small town of Garnett, Texas. And then one of her coworkers at a restaurant she works out ends up missing and ultimately dead. So it becomes a mystery of, you know, what happened to her co-worker, Victoria. Her grandfather, Leroy, is a private detective, former sheriff, sort of a legend in town. So Annie sets out investigating. And what really sets it apart is that, one, just a tremendous sense of place. You can smell that the rain when it hits the dust 
And she just does such an artful, the author does such just an artful job of, you know, portraying those conflicted feelings that many of us have about our hometowns, that, you know, love, hate, frustration, anger, how we love its embrace, but buck up against its restrictiveness. And <laughs> Annie is 22 years old, investigating a murder, and she's not a particularly good investigator, but she leads with her heart, she cares. And one of the things that was so exciting to me was how Sam used this really artfully really used her like experiences as a young woman to sort of guide her instincts and um, help her sort of uncover what happens. It's just a really great read that's very well done. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with acapella bookseller Matt Nixon. We've been discussing his summer reading recommendations. You said that your favorite novel from this year is A Tiny Upward Shove by Melissa Chadburn. That's high praise from you, Matt. What makes this book compelling? It's remarkable, and... I'd even go so far, Lois, to say it's not only the best thing I've read this year, I don't know that I've read five better things over the last several years. Wow. This is a debut author, Melissa Chadburn, and <laughs> there's no way I'll do justice to the beauty and grace that's in that's exists within these pages. But just to give you a little sense of what it's about, the book opens and our main character is a woman, young woman named Maria Salas. Um, and it opens at the moment of her death at the hands of another person, of a man. And as she's dying, we take on the viewpoint of what we come to find out is the Aswang. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's, it's a Filipino myth of the spirit. And then, you know, we're guided then through Maria's life three generations of women, her grandmother who's from the Philippines and her mother who grows up in Southern California where Maria did. And, and just as we go through this journey, we just, it just a heartbreaking exploration of the failures that, you know, our systems can have for those uh, people who exist on the margins, you know, that hardworking, trying to make a difference. One thing sets them back and, and how, um, that can be, you know, just devastating and, and how a life can slide from that point, you know, without giving away how Mar Maria ends up at the hands of this murderer. The book also gives us glimpses into his life. And uh, not until the author's note at the end did I know that it was based on a real murderer, uh, a guy named Willie Picton, uh, who was a pig farmer who confessed to murdering 49 women in Southern cannabis, like Vancouver, south of Vancouver. And this was this book was born out of a passion by the author. She's worked in social services, so she knows what, what she's talking about. And she just so magnificently brings it to life and gives the story of people like Maria such grace. Mm. I'm getting choked up talking about it. Oh, my. Don't usually think of Canada and a horrific crime, but this is exceptional. It really is. Are there books you're eager to recommend that will be released 
later this summer? Oh, absolutely. There's one I'm really excited about. A few years ago, Alexis Shapkin, the author, put out her debut novel, Saint X, which was one of my favorite things I read that year. And it's now being adapted into a miniseries by Hulu. Her follow-up, I was so excited to get it. It's called Elsewhere. And (laughs) this one is, it's, it's fantastic. It is just, here's the premise. It's sort of set in this place that's sort of out of time. You can't really tell when it is, much less where it is. And it's a society that doesn't seem very technologically advanced. Think more like uh, Mennonites, that Mm. type of thing. But every so often on an irregular schedule, women, especially mothers, vanish, just disappear without a trace. And they have strange traditions and rituals that go along with this. And, and of course, no one can explain why they're disappearing. But of course, this over the years, this culture has come up with reasons. And, you know, there's whispers about, oh, why she ended up. And it all comes down to, you know, obviously them not being a woman well enough uh, is why that they were the ones who got taken away. Mm-hmm. And then the book goes in just a sideways turn that you would not expect. And it is, it's almost fable-like. It's just hypnotic, spellbinding. Just here's one of my standards, Lois. I love reading and I've always got a book, at least one going, but the really good ones, the ones that I can be at work or doing something else and think, ooh, I can't wait to get back to that book tonight. This is one of those books, Elsewhere by Alexis Shakin. Matt, when someone approaches you at Acapella looking for a book recommendation, but unsure of where to begin, What do you tell them? Well, you know, Lois, the first thing I do, I want to get them a book they're going to like, not just necessarily a book I liked. So the first thing I do is I ask them, tell me about some books you've loved that you've read recently. And from there, even if I haven't read them, I not only read books, I read about books. And of course, I've got coworkers. So that helps me triangulate sort of what tastes and their flavors they might like. And from there, you know, I... I can give them, you know, a variety of books to choose from that might hit some of those flavors or tones that they like, but it really comes down to just trying to figure out what they like and then getting them something that would meet that need. And a lot of times my favorite ones are, you know, the ones who are really excited about discovery. And then it's just a matter of just what do they not like reading? Because, you know, for example, I'll tell you tiny upward shove. Whenever I talk to um, books, people, that's the one I was telling you about, about the murderers in Canada. Mm -hmm my favorite thing I've read, but it, it's got some intense material. So, you know, not all readers are looking for that. So I ask them, you know, how do you feel about this type of thing or that type of thing? And if they're, that's a no-go, I sort of know which book's not to recommend at that point. So much more personal than an algorithm. Absolutely. That's really what independent bookstores are all about. Well, as indie bookstores go... Acapella is so special. You mentioned your boss, Frank Reese. A big shout out to him for really creating and maintaining acapella books as something like a community center. Matt Nixon, thank you so very much. Well, thank you, Lois. I've so enjoyed this. Matt Nixon. Acapella bookseller and a writer for Georgia State University. You can find a list of Matt's summer reading recommendations 
on our website, wabe.org. On that note, among the most memorable books I've ever read has recently won a Pulitzer Prize in the category of biography. Chasing Me to My Grave, an artist's memoir of the Jim Crow South by Winfred Rembert, as told to Aaron I. Kelly. Mr. Rembert died just before the book came out last year. Aaron Kelly is a professor of philosophy at Tufts University and discovered the artist's work several years ago while working on a criminal justice project. Rembert chronicled his life and time in prison through art he painted on leather in his cell. Kelly contacted the artist who was living in New Haven, Connecticut, and found his story so compelling she offered to help document his life, and the result was chasing me to my grave. His art is beautiful and his story unforgettable. You can hear my interview with Aaron Kelly and Patsy Rembert, the artist's widow, on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about Hammond's House Museum's exhibition, No Justice, No Peace, Protest Photography, 1967 through 2022. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.